Virginia, William Hill, America's number one sports book, is now here. And we have a special 2021 offer to help you bet on all your favorite sports risk-free. Download the William Hill Sportsbook app, and when you sign up, you can get started with a risk-free bet of up to $2,021. Use promo code RADIORF. Terms and conditions apply. 21 plus only. Gambling problem? Call, text, or chat our confidential and toll-free helpline at 1-888-532-3500. Let's make it interesting with William Hill Sportsbook. This is Kim Meyer, host of Choose to Rise. Thanks for listening to the following broadcast on Public House Media. everybody welcome to no filter friday on public house media where we discuss all things hashtag me too from inside of hollywood and i'm sitting here with the illustrious robert candle yes <laughs> who is a mantor which i've never heard of before did you coin that term mantor uh, what are my agents well, my podcast agents your podcast agent yeah kelly glover of the talent squad cool. came up with that and i liked it that it, it it's pretty cool it's a it's a good you've got you've got the corner market on it so you wrote this lovely book unhidden a book for men and those confused by them which is a amazon amazon number one bestseller and there you are in the back of Mm -hmm. it it's funny i was just talking on our last uh my last episode about how we might have a, a no filter friday book club and i think you've cemented the idea of having a no filter friday book club so you went to burning man when you were 28 Yes. And it changed your life. Yes. And you became the man that you are now. Yes, through a long and crazy road. <laughs> crazy journey. The epic's hero's journeys, for sure. For sure, for sure. Absolutely. And in most, you know, most people say, like, I went to Burning Man. And then all these things happened. But yours is, like, pretty... It well, sounds like destiny to me. It was... Well, the, the, the way I like to tell my story was a normal, I was 28... Then my first wife, Carol, said, let's go to Burning Man. And this was 1998. So it was a mere like 18,000 people compared to the 80,000 yeah, it is, it is today. today. And the only thing I knew about Burning Man was this picture book that we had seen, which is naked people walking around encrusted in mud. I guess there was a mud bath that mm-hmm. previous year when the book was done. And I was like, I'm never going to that. Those are for those other people. <laughs> That's not for me. But Carol was like, come on, let's go. And I was like, all right, I'll go. Go for her. And then what happened was three or four really amazing experiences. Uh, we talked about sexuality. I did magic mushrooms for the first time. I saw this other part of me. So it was a it was a life changing experience. Would you call it an awakening? I would undoubtedly call it an awakening. Very, no question asked. Very cool. Yeah. Well, that's cool that you're like, no, I'm not that person. And you get there and you're like, I'm so this person. <laughs> that's totally me. Well, the funny part was I had a better time. I felt more at ease there than Carol did. Really? She was the hippie massage school mm-hmm. person. I was the downtown San Francisco yuppie shirt and tie every day. Everything very clean and orderly and neat. And then as soon as I got there, there was this part of me that just woke up. And it was just like, Whoa. and it was a truly amazing experience. How fantastic. So that's the Burning Man started your journey to right. being to becoming the mentor. So what was your first thing that you did when you got home? We just started to talk and experiment. This was San Francisco in the late 90s. So there was the rave culture. It was it, a scene. It was a scene. There, so their sexuality was available. It really was the hub of a lot of great classes and uh, awakenings for many people. So the first thing that happened after Burning Man was about eight months later, I went to my first workshop on sexuality and had my uh, ego destroyed and my whole life woken up. Oh, wow. So you had two. You had a two for one deal. two, two major experiences. That's interesting. Why did it feel, why did you feel like it crushed your ego to go to this class? Well, I'll tell you the story. It's the first chapter of the book just to put me on even keel with anyone reading it. Totally. I, you know, eight months after Burning Man, nine months after Burning Man, uh, go to this class on sexuality. And uh, I was uh, worked in downtown San Francisco, was smart, but not very emotionally intelligent, but book smart, and went into this class. And then we go down to the basement, and it was definitely a hippie house. There were mandalas, there was incense, there were naked children running around. And so I walked into this basement where there's 18, 20 other people and the instructor. This guy named Erwan Devon and his partner, Allison, on the front couch. And I sit down the circle and they say, okay, we're going to introduce ourselves. So I do my introduction first. 
And in that introduction, I thought I was eloquent. I thought I was funny. I thought I was smart. I thought Erwan was going to make room for us, for me on the couch so I can co-teach with him. You know, and instead, when I finished my introduction, he said, hey, do you know your wife's crying? And she was sitting right next to me. And I had absolutely no idea of how chauvinistic, misogynistic, insensitive I was. And it was the first time she probably felt safe enough to cry. So, and then Erwan, who's still teaching, by the way, uh, did the most awful thing. He said, okay, who's next? And I got to sit in the burn for two hours of other people's introductions, thinking, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. But instead I stayed, and that was the awakening for the rest of my life. That's so interesting. Um, What did your wife say to you when... When you finally could talk, like after these... I went immediately to repair my ego. And this is what most men do, especially. Something happens, and the first thing we want to do, rather than ask the question, are you okay? You know, it was really like, please validate me so I don't feel bad. Mm-hmm. And I was angry. I was angry at Erwan. I was angry at Carol. I was angry at all those people. But really, I was really angry at myself. I just didn't have the acumen to look inward. I was looking externally for letting me know if I was doing right or wrong. And so she basically said, I'm not ready to talk to you, which had me sit like a pariah. Like I felt like yeah. I was walking around the room with you know, those other 18 strangers looking at me like I was the asshole who made his wife cry. So it was, <laughs> Day uh, one. Day the, one, minute first one. First <laughs> hour, exactly, of my life. So it was horrible. Oh, gosh. So... That okay, so that was the catalyst. What 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 else did you learn in this class besides besides all that? I don't know how much I learned in that class besides that moment. I was so in shell shock. I mean, the main thing I learned was choice, because I I had that choice when he said, "Hey, do you know your wife's crying? Who's next?" I had the choice of standing up, demanding she go with me or leave, Mm -hmm. go back to my status quo, go back to the man cave, go back to my ignorance, or the second choice is okay. There's something here. There's something I need to learn. There's a wake-up call. And I picked the latter, which has actually led to the most amazing life. But we all have these choices. Uh, you know, John Gottman calls them sliding door, sliding door moments. In the movie Sliding Door, where she goes left yeah, or right, yeah, yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow, I think it was. Mm-hmm. In his book, he calls it uh, sliding door movements, when you decide. And I just chose to stay, sit in the burn, and learn. And, and, and learn the lesson. It hasn't stopped in 20, 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> you're still you're still sitting in it. You're exactly. <laughs> you've, 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 you're, you're in motion, but still still living in that. That's really interesting. Um, I've never heard anybody say that before. Mm. So if you're still learning, what have you, how did you get into the, so we'll cut to now, I guess you could say, because okay. a thing that I talk about on my show all the time is that like, Yes, we talk about women and Me Too and them being taken advantage of and being uh, preyed upon, but also one in six boys is molested, mm-hmm. and that's also a huge problem. And mm-hmm. it wasn't really until, like, Terry Crews came out with mm-hmm. his story of, uh, yeah, and it, another man agent did this to me from this giant agency, and mm-hmm. I just had to deal with it, and I couldn't do anything about it. And his story, like, that was, like, basically the first and only person that's really been able to break down some walls of, like, it's not just women, it's mm-hmm. men, too. It's mm-hmm. a predator problem, mm-hmm. not a prey problem. Mm-hmm. So how are... How are you dealing with that now, today, currently? I, the main thing I want people to understand is the concept of vulnerability. I don't know if you're a fan of Brene Brown, but she she did her TED Talk on it. She, I'm just reading now the Dare to Lead book, Daring Greatly. It's this concept of vulnerability. And vulnerability is something that men are not taught. We're actually taught the opposite. We're taught to build up walls, to defend, to ensure. But to me, vulnerability is strength. Vulnerability is willing to say, there's something going on that's not optimal. How do we, a collective we, either in a couple or in a corporation or in a school or in the priesthood, how do we start talking about these things that are happening that no one's talking about? How do we have the ethical conversations? How do we have the chargey conversations? It takes vulnerability because you might see some things you're doing that is not uh, pleasant or can be toxic or can be hurtful. And our ability to say, please give me feedback to to understand before trying to be understood 
is the next step. And so the book and my work is really about slowing down, listening, validating, hearing, and up-leveling. Interesting. The, um, I, I think vulnerability is like a word that gets like thrown around a lot. And we don't really like delve into like what it really, really actually means. It mm. is because it's like, an, in my opinion, it's like an activity being it's a verb mm. <laughs> being vulnerable. Like it's something that you have to actively do as somebody who's went around the world and back interviewing survivors of sex crimes and gender based violence and stuff like that. Um, I've noticed that the people that weren't supported and like coming out with their story, whether it was like something that was seeming like an invisible injury or a very visible injury, mm -hmm. um, when they weren't supported, it seems to me like it was, they came out to somebody or they told somebody their story and that person didn't want to deal with like the effort that it would require to, you can't really ever fully heal from that, but to, to confront it. Yeah. To confront it and right. to come to the other side of it. Right. Yeah. I have a client. I won't give you too many details, but I'll give you the high level details. Okay. You know, she was raped when she was 11. She was intoxicated. And then she had a report the person who was 18. Yeah. Then she had a deal. He got justice or he mm -hmm. went to jail for it. But then she had to live in the town where everyone behind the back said that was the girl who put herself in the position to be raped. So in my mind, she was raped twice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She was raped once physically, mm -hmm. raped emotionally, energetically. And who, you know, which one do you think is more painful, more toxic, more impactful. It's the latter. And so to go back to vulnerability, we live in a society, you know, Trump has even said this, deny, 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 deny. You can see it in everything he does across the board, the whole Me Too movement. Er, you know, oh, yeah. I, I don't know how many times I've read categorically denies right. X, X amount of allegations. It doesn't matter who it is. Like, it's the same thing. It's like every single attorney, every single spokesperson for all of these people, they use the same like, it's like the same three sentences right. over and over and over again. Which is the second rape. Like, you know, the Kavanaugh of Lazy Ford. I was so intrigued by it a year ago. Just read everything. And, and you know, it was, it was almost exactly a year ago, a year ago and a week. Yeah, like something October, like that. It was really close. October 5th, yeah, when she we talked about it. And so I was just looking. And I was like, what would happen if Kavanaugh just said, listen, I don't remember this. I don't understand this. I don't remember you. But let's sit and talk about it. Let's have a one-on-one a, a -on -one conversation or a mediated conversation. I want to hear your experience. I want to understand what you're feeling. I may not under remember a thing authentically or not, but just that first step of allowing... Like, I will hear you. I will hear you. Under X, Y, and Z conditions. Right. And that doesn't happen. And that's the second rape. And that's the how the chasm continues to exist in our in our society between predators and the, and the victims, people who are preyed upon. It's just, you know, one rape and then the second rape. And so my belief in the word vulnerability is the the Fords or the Weinsteins or, you know, the senators or... Um, Whoever, it doesn't matter exactly. who it is, named or not. Right, the teacher who, who looked at a schoolgirl the wrong way, not even physically touched or has an energy or actually has a desire and keeps it inside, but still it is impacting the young schoolgirls running around in shorts. Like, whatever it is, just the opportunity to say, this is what the impact of your energy does to me. Wow, I didn't know that. I apologize. Like, whatever that is, how much healing we would have, but we don't. Because yeah. it's denied, denied, denied. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, the the a, a few of the people that I interviewed on my little trek around the world talked about how, um, you know, they told someone and it went horribly wrong mm -hmm. in the other direction. It's like they that didn't happen to you. It's like you weren't even there. Like how do you, you have zero inkling of what did or didn't happen? Mm -hmm. You have no idea. And I have the same experience with. Um, I have an uncle that's in jail for molesting his stepkids mm. for many, many, many years. Mm. And I've had other people tell me like, yeah, he did. They don't, we don't know. I've never pulled the transcripts for that trial. Mm. Like, I don't know exactly what these girls said or didn't say. Um, but I could find it as a matter of public record, mm. but they're like, yeah, well that doesn't surprise me because when we were X amount of years old and two sisters close in age, just like, just like they were, mm. 
he did this, this, and this. Mm. And everybody's like, nope, he didn't do that. That You're making up lies. It's like, that's really interesting that they're lying because he's sitting in jail for 25 years right. For, right. for literally the same thing. Right. So really, are we going to keep keep denying this? And there's been this meme floating around that I really, really love that it's like people will disown a gay family member, mm-hmm. but they'll protect the pedophile family member. Mm-hmm. It's very, very strange, but mm-hmm. it's so true. So, true. So, so, so true. Well, people have the question, what does this mean about me? Mm-hmm. So if I have a gay family member, did I do something wrong? Maybe this part of me that's gay. There's always that personalizing it and taking it on. Our own ego gets involved. And a pedophile, oh, if that they, if the world found out about that pedophile, what would that mean about me? How many times have we heard, like, you know, my reputation is being impacted by our, our siblings and our children? Rather than confronting, okay, this is happening. How do I actively support the environment, the community, the entire container, rather than just protect my own deeply conscious or unconscious self-interest. Yeah, when I went to Jamaica to go try to interview people because apparently 40% of the Jamaican population their first sexual experience is either straight up rape or mm. just coerced. Mm. And a, the, nobody would really talk to me. They'd say some whispers like on the low, but they wouldn't talk to me on the record. And they said it's because that most of the time like the family pedophile is also the only person that has a job. Mm. So like they get to do whatever they want because they're the only one with an income. Right. And that kind of goes back to the conversation of that, like, a lot of these sexual predators, like, it's not necessarily about the sex. It's about the power and sure. the control. Like, I can do this to you and there's nothing that you can do about it and everybody will support me. Well, for me, it's it's more interesting. I use the word interesting in a, in a value-neutral way. What had that person have to use force for power? What was their dynamic with their their parents and their grandfathers and great parents. I mean, ancestral trauma, I don't know if you're a, a knower of that, but you know, trauma can go down up to seven generations. Oh, I'm sure. Passed down easily from seven generations. And so if you look at you know, you look at someone who hurts someone in this generation, what happened to the grandfather, great grandfather? Where was that power and how is that passed down? And then if you look at people now in current time, just listening to this podcast or knowing someone, how can you stop toxicity in the yeah, next well, seven it's, generations. It's, it's a big it's a big thing to like be able to you know they're calling it like generational curses on on the interwebs these okay. days. But it's true though because I, certainly I can follow my line of trauma right. all the way back to wherever I can. I don't even know these people for the most part. Right. Um, it's very easy to see who did what to who because hurt people hurt people. And you're right unless you actively go out in your life and say I'm stopping this. Mm-hmm. We're not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. It will continue. Right. Like, you have to actively stop it. It's not, it's kind of the, I guess you could kind of say it's like the, the default mode. Like, it will just continue to run until mm. somebody's like, nah, we're not doing this anymore. And they have to turn it around. And turning it around is an ex- incredible effort. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a born and bred chauvinist, down to my core. I am born in 1970. I'm a firstborn Jewish male. I was born in New York in the East Coast in the 70s. Everything about me is bred to be a chauvinist. Everything in bred of me is to think women are one or more degrees less important than me. It's my culture. It's where I grew up. It's the age. It's the end of the Mad Men time. Yeah, right? I was it's like, when like, you said the 70s in New York, I'm like, that's Mad Men. Right, that's exactly. eyeballs in the office. Exactly. So I am born and bred to be that. And I was I was that until this guy, Erwan, said to me, hey, do you know your wife's crying? Like, I was just, you know, odds are I was going to live my entire life a nice guy, but a chauvinist, a misogynist, like all these things inside of me. And that one moment, that one moment in time, which I could easily have not confronted, I easily could have pushed away, some voice in me said, listen, and see if you want to up-level your life with that. That was the only difference between me and the path I was headed on to really end up more like my father, you know, who's a chauvinist. You know, it's like, it's just, you look at him, he is a chauvinist. He's a good guy. But he's a chauvinist, like so that one moment, and everyone has the opportunity to change their lives and all the generations. That well, follow. we're all in the driver's seat of our own lives. Right. We can do whatever it is that we want. So, I read this thing a while ago because I've been wondering, like, the same question. Because I, in my travels, I was like, gosh, the common thread that I see is that men just have this overwhelming compulsion mm. to control women. Mm. 
And I'm like, why is that? Like, I don't care what any of you are doing. <laughs> like, go knock yourself out. Just, you know, don't do it in my way. The And I read this article, and it's about how when boys are toddlers, mm-hmm. they, and they're growing they're you know exploring the world around them they eventually crawl away from their mom Mm. to go explore the world because they're growing that's what they're supposed to do Mm -hmm. you know you can't stay on the tit forever Mm. and according to this article that says that when boys do that up until that time they have their full attention and command of their mom they can scream and cry and get her attention whenever they want get food whenever they want whatever their little (laughs) whatever their little brains want they can control her and they Mm. can get it because they have that communication and she wants to Mm. that's what you know that's what your relationship is supposed to be like but then they when they crawl away they go explore their world and become toddlers and figure it out and keep going in their minds subconsciously their mom pulled away from them Mm -hmm. they didn't pull away from her Mm -hmm. and they're somehow want to keep that going mm. for their like their infantile state they want to keep that ability to control mm-hmm. have you do you feel like there's any truth to that oh for sure i mean my therapist <laughs> i'm a, a second marriage and i'm now a stepfather to two girls okay 9 11 met them when they were four and six and my therapist saved me and he said children are narcissistic and you want them to be narcissistic you want them to understand and separate and everything about them and at some point you want to decrease the narcissistic viewpoints into self you know self-creating community and connection okay and so it totally makes sense from that point of view that it's happening to me happening to me as a boy yeah because either we're innocent or guilty and for me to be innocent you have to be Be guilty. guilty and for me to be guilty that means you have to be innocent so it's a it's a dichotomy in yeah. that shape or form. So definitely, I can see that. Okay. So my next question is, yeah. <laughs> since you you seem to know these things, um, why why is there a, a need to feel chauvinistic? Like, oh, this person's like less than me. It's not even a need. It is a computer program. It's software. It's software in your operating system that you have no idea. Then you don't even know that it's there. It's it was. I'm I'm still a chauvinist. I'm I can still feel that software inside of me. I've just upgraded my operating system (laughs) to know not to run that program. It's like you know Windows 98. Yeah. Which is actually the year it started to wake up. Yeah. It really is Windows 98. I don't want to run that operating system. I want to run whatever Mac, whatever. Yeah. Snow Leopard, whatever I have now. But the point is, is that it's just a program that's instilled in us. It's 6,000 years the patriarchy. The patriarchy has been around for 6,000 years. Okay. This is a. That we can count. (laughs) Well, that's the historians basically say when we went from egalitarian, basically everyone just trying to survive into the patriarchal, where all genders, and I do mean they're multiple even back then, said, hey, let's have men kind of run the show because they're stronger and they can protect and, you know, the warring and the killing. Yeah, happened. I mean, I think it makes sense under those under those circumstances because, you know, breastfeeding is a full-time job. Right. And men can't do it. Right. So It some, totally made sense 6,000 years ago. Yeah, it made sense at the time. Right. So 6,000 years ago. And so here we are, if you look at the timeline, if, if you go back to 1848, the women's suffrage movement was the first time where we said, okay, let's have the right to vote. Women as property was still in the books until the late 1880s. Uh, then you had the 19th Amendment in 1920. Less than 100 years ago, women got the right to vote. Then you the 1940s, where there was like this peak up of women, like uh, you know Rosie the Riveter, or yeah. women coming into the workforce, and like because they had oh, to, yeah, they shoulder had to. to the wheel, exactly. And then what happened? If you read the you know the the feminine mystique, uh, Betty Friedan's book, they try to push women right back into that home, Absolutely. right back. All magazines, all advertising was about women being shoved back. But like you can't pour that you can't wine put glass. The freak back in exactly. the cage. <laughs> no more. And then 1970s, 60s and 70s is where everything really blown up. But if you look at that, 6,000 years of the patriarchy since 1970, you know, mm-hmm. women still couldn't uh, get their own credit card without a husband's signature in the 1970s. So here we are, a mere 50 years later. With 6,000 years of programming, software on top of software, that men are one degree or more degrees higher than women. And the epic evolution of the last 50 years has led to total mayhem, women rising in power, 
economically, sexually, uh, politically, the Me Too movement, all these things really fast. And men are confused. Women are confused. And we're all confused. We're all confused. <laughs> we're all very, very confused as yeah. to what to do. Um, so then that's 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 part of your I would say the cornerstone of your mentoring right. of like, how do we deal with this, this life in the world of, in the, in, they, they call it the Me Too era, but I think we're going to continue for this. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't think this is going to have an end point. Like, right. I think it's just going to continue and evolve just like everything else has. Um, but a lot of people say that like, oh, well, men don't know what to do or, so how have you been mentoring and teaching men what to do? First thing I tell people, I have a cycle, it's in the book. It's the first step of any change is to confront. You have to stop. You got to name the puppy. You got to name the puppy. You got to take down those blinders. You have to see. You have to confront. You have to look at, oh, I've had three relationships that haven't worked out, or I'm in a job that I hate, or I'm 40 pounds overweight, or I'm addicted to porn, or whatever it is. You have to stop, take down the blinders, take a look in the mirror, and say, this thing is not working in my life. The first step is to confront. The second step is to investigate. We live in the most information-rich time. You, you can, can go have to whatever Google. information you want. You, it, it, some might be contrary, but you can still go and research, yeah. find great books, great articles, Facebook groups. There's a, there's a plethora of information, so investigate. The third is the most important, is you need to commit. I am committing to change. It doesn't have to be a big change. It could be, I want to lose 10 pounds. Uh, I want to improve my communication with my wife. Uh, I want to stop abusing porn. Commit to that. Then after that commitment, make a practice, which may include having a coach or a therapist or a 12-step group. Make a something. practice. Something. Don't do it alone. You can't do it alone, basically. You can, but much, much, help much yourself. easier. Help yeah. yourself. Let someone help you. Right. Build a practice. Do it for a set period of time, as short as 28 days or longer. And then when you're done with that cycle, review you know, see how you did, debrief, and then decide if you want to do it again. And then keep up-leveling your life step by step. And so that's what I often recommend people is just this five-step process to go from point A to point B. Wonderful. So I was reading in your situation that um, men feel like they're the script that they were given mm -hmm. by their predecessors is no longer no. is no longer working for no. them. Can you talk about like what that script was and how it's basically been flipped? I mean if you you just look across the board, let's go back to our last fifty years, the scripts of my father. My father was born in nineteen forty one and I was born in nineteen seventy. So the script he gave me was I was supposed to get a job have a 401k, have two kids, grandchildren really more than children, but have children, you know, take care of my financial security. Uh, this script, this this hackneyed script. I was also It was a grocery list. It was yeah, it was a path. It was a, you know, like a a map of how to be successful. I mean, my father's called me a financial failure. He's called me a biological failure because I'm not living the life that he thought it would be. In that script at 28, I was nailing it. I was normal. I was you know, going for <laughs> a 401k. You were taking things off the I had the six-figure salary. Seriously, I had, you know, working downtown San Francisco, I had it. I had the house. I had the wife. I had all the things, but I was miserable. I was overweight. I, you know, didn't know my wife. We were like two ships passing in the night. It was miserable. But because I had followed the script, I had what's called cognitive dissonance. I thought this was supposed to make me happy. I was told that this was it. Right. My, you told me, Dad, if I did these 47,000 things, I would be happy. But I'm, I'm a workaholic. I'm 40 pounds overweight. And I don't know this woman. We're definitely not having sex. So it's like this is wasn't the script didn't work for me. How sad. <laughs> how sad and how wonderful at the same time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got well, I guess you got to be like, see, the mirror. Right. It's not working. Well, I was Look lucky. at it. I was lucky. I was lucky for my first wife, Carol. Yeah. Which I hold deep, deep respect and gratitude because she was the one who said, hey, this isn't working. I was like, what? I'm working. We have a house. Blah, blah, blah. It really came like, no, no, no. Yeah. And she's like, no, this isn't working. And so she was the white rabbit that led me down the rabbit hole. She was the one who said, let's go to Burning Man. Let's go to... To Anwar's know, class. Exactly. Anwar's class. Yeah, like, let's... Like, she really was the the catalyst for me to change and so grateful uh, for that experience. So sometimes it really it takes someone else to say, 
you you could be more. There's so much more. You could be more. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about like the fear within the Me Too movement because I'm always hearing and seeing everywhere about how men are scared of the things that are that are happening with Me Too. So how are you dealing with like the fear in your clients? I get this question a lot and it's funny. It's really more from women than men. Women tend to ask this question more than men really? to ask me this question. I don't you know, this is my experience. A lot of mothers tend to, I'm not saying your mother, but a lot I'm of not. mothers <laughs> a lot of mothers will ask me this question. I'm worried about my son, he's X, Y, and Z. And um and I basically said, um, teach him to be a gentleman. Teach him to be a gentleman. Easy enough, yeah. Really simple. It's maybe not easy to implement, but be a gentleman. And here's what to me what a gentleman does. A gentleman uh, is available for feedback. A gentleman asks for consent. A gentleman takes his time. A gentleman pays attention because we're always going to make mistakes. We're always going yeah, to. Yeah, we're, we're not going to be 100, 100% of the time. Right, it's impossible. Right. Back to, to Brene Brown, like if you're not, you know, risking mistake, you're not in the arena. You're actually not, you know, living. So you're going to make mistakes. The difference between, in my opinion, someone like a Matt Laurel or a Trump or, you know, like, or a Weinstein is they were refusing to take feedback. A lot of feedback. You know, Weinstein had a lot <laughs> of feedback. Hundreds and hundreds. An entire town full of feedback. Right, feedback he just ignored. And so a gentleman would be like, huh, the first time the feedback comes up, all right, how do I do this better? Apologize, validate. And so my opinion for men in this Me Too era or this Me Too world or this Me Too, whatever it's going to be, be a gentleman and just go slow. Go at the speed of sensation. Pay attention. Uh, you know, the whole Aziz story was fascinating to me. Oh, absolutely. Like really fascinating. To me, I my opinion, you know, from the, the article was a year ago, I guess. Oh, I think it was like a year and a half ago. A year now. and a half ago? Yeah. yeah. Uh, right, a year and a half ago. Uh, basically, he was just a dumb guy doing dumb things, and the woman, you know, wasn't honest about what was happening. I'm not saying yeah. she was innocent. They were both co-created yeah, situation. Both, well, that was my, when my because I knew Aziz and I threw him off a couch in an audition. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was like, because he's so much smaller than me, and we yeah. were doing this improv thing for funny people, and I'm like, <laughs> kick. <laughs> but um, I was like. They both weren't using their voice. Right. And we both have, everyone has a duty right. to use your voice. And right. if you got to drop bows on somebody, then by all means, drop bows on somebody. Right. But you're, you're, you're both creating a problem for yourself. Right. You're not doing the right thing, and you're not doing the right thing. Therefore, like your wife said, this is not working. Right. And he, if he was a gentleman, he would have noticed he would have had the acumen, and I'm sure he has it now, but he would have the acumen and awareness to be like, huh, she said no, what does this mean? So being a gentleman is just paying more attention, going slow. And again, consent. So easy to do it, you know, well and not ruin the mood. You know, there's always yeah. a fear of consent, you know. If, well, if you're going to ruin the mood, guess what, buddy? There was no mood. Right. Did you see Hitch, the Will Smith movie, Kevin yeah, James? Yeah, absolutely. To me, that is the ultimate version of consent. Do you remember yeah. the scene? He walks up to the stairs and says, okay, you lean, Will Smith says, yeah. you lean in 90% and you let her come the, the last 10. 10%. That's consent. That's him saying, I'm interested, I'm willing to take the risk, I'm showing I'm desire, right yeah. but I'm not going the last 10%, and then wait for the woman to to cross the last 10%. Of course, Kevin Jane kissed him, and yeah. that was hilarious. <laughs> but the point is, like, don't do that. Like, just go 90%, and that's a great version of consent. I have a desire to kiss you. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm sorry, you're really not my type. Or, you know, I'm feeling energy between, but I'm not ready yet. Yeah. Great. And then if she says no, then she's not rejecting you. She's just rejecting your offer. Yeah. Well, then I think there's a lot to be said about, like, taking rejection. And because me personally, I'm yeah. very, like, I've, I've never liked anybody. I'm an old curmudgeon okay. since day one. Um, I'm like, no, nah, you don't want none of this. I'm no, you don't even want this. Go somewhere else. But um, I've always been like you know like i feel like a lot of guys like they just play the numbers game and i'm mm -hmm. just like they just go up to anybody and like let's do blah 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 right. and you're like you don't even know me right. <laughs> like and i was i would always say like i am a giant bitch you don't want any of this right. like you're you're mistaken but i think a lot of people wouldn't be met with so much rejection and feel some type of way about it if they didn't take 
so many risks on getting rejected that weren't even worth it. Well, how about this? Learn to love rejection. That too. You know, learn learn to appreciate rejection. Learn to use it for yeah. your for a your fast awareness. No is second to a yes. Right. It, it's really. I'm not saying no doesn't mean no. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying like, oh, what had you reject me? What is it about my approach? And sometimes a no can turn into a yes. But if you act like a man child with the no, the chances of getting a yes are <laughs> zero right so it's like oh enjoy the rejection i had a colleague back in my my one taste days he would actually get turned on by rejection so women would just i don't know he was he, he was just, an interesting he fellow. was an interesting character he, his face would get red his whole body would turn you could just watch him get turned on by rejection because that's because he he enjoyed the the play of it so again it's really no definitely means no and the, who you are in the face of rejection, maybe not with that woman, but going forward to learn, you know, that's the master. That's 100% true. I think it's in all my places I've been, I've always had guys coming up to me and in my ear or whatever, and I can really only think of less than five guys that had any kind of game that e that worked out for them or even didn't. Yeah. Um, I remember I had this one guy come up to me in a mall, and he was like, oh, blah, 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 you know, just saying the things. And I'm like, actually, honey... I have a boyfriend. I'm the wrong person, but yeah. you are very sweet. And he's like, well, you can't be mad at me for having good taste. I'm like, you know what? I can't send him on his merry yeah. way. And talking about him years later, it's like, that's, you're right. Who, who you are in the face of rejection says a lot about you as a person. Mm -hmm. A lot, a lot. And I have a lot of people write to me or they'll talk to me like, oh, like this guy tried to get my phone number. And then I was like, mm, no, that's not a thing. And they just lost their mind in a gas station. Mm -hmm. Or when I was in India, I was interviewing girls that, uh, the first time I was interviewing girls that live in an acid attack survivor house and they have had their faces literally burned mm. off for turning down marriage proposals, rejecting guys mm. of the smallest rejection. Mm -hmm. um, there was this one woman. Oh, gosh, it was so terrible. She lived in her and her husband lived in this village with their son. And I guess these like village guys were always like, oh, you know, we want to sleep with you. And she was like, no, I'm married. I'm a kid. Leave, go bother somebody else. Like, leave me alone. Mm. Like you're barking up the wrong tree. And they snatched her two-year-old boy mm. and doused him in acid and then threw him in a dumpster mm. because she wouldn't... The married lady with the child who had zero interest in them, and they should have had zero interest in her, right. that was that was her punishment for rejecting them. And now yeah. this child who was doused in acid as a two-year-old has to live with this for the rest of mm. his life. Um, but my, the thing that I asked the girls, though, I was like, okay, so a lot of them get attacked with acid because they turned down a marriage proposal, mm -hmm. which apparently is like a huge deal. So I asked one of the girls, her name's Sapna, I was like, so you were with this guy and he was like, let's get married. And you're like, you know what? Like, this is cool, but you're not like the long-term dude mm -hmm. for me. I want to stay in school. I want to do this. I want to do that. So then he tries to throw acid on you and you're like, yeah, I told you that I didn't want to be with you. Right. Like, because you're not the right person. Like, you just proved me right. right. And they're like, yeah, basically. Insanity. Essentially, yeah. Insanity. It's like, but you know. And what has men so much personalizing rejection? What is it? What is there? You know, I talk a lot about the the external validation of men. Men are external validation junkies. People are, but men really are. Yeah. We look externally for knowing we're doing it right. The attractive wife, the job, the car, the stock portfolio, the power. We're looking externally to know that we're a good man. What I teach men is internal validation. I'm a good man. I'm a good man. I'm a good man. And all these things are happening outside of me is the gravy to my own self-belief, my own self-esteem. Yeah, those are the byproducts the of extra. being a good man, not the product. And because if you have no internal validation muscle or fortitude, then when you do get rejected by the external, of course you go down. And of course you make meaning around it or connotation around it. So what I teach men is to stand up straight. I have a something I wrote called the New Seduction Experience, which is actually the new non-toxic seduction. And basically the whole concept is of standing up straight in your own power, being so strong that the wind couldn't blow you down. You're like the reed by the river swaying with the rejection. And our ability to stand straight and hold our own core is actually what makes us more attractive than these guys who are constantly grasping Validate me. Validate me. Oh, validate absolutely. Me. There's nothing. There's. I, I always say that like there's 
there's very few things that are sexier than responsibility, uh-huh. like having integrity mm. and confidence. Right. Because as, as much as it pains me to say this, having a partner is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It is a lot of work. Yeah. So if you have a partner that's coming to you that just on baseline is going to be a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And then if they have these extra needs on top of that because they have insecurities or this, that, and the other thing, like you're, it's just, you're just adding like piles and piles and piles of work that you have to get through to, to maybe be okay mm-hmm. and get through to the other side. And that's, that's a tough, that's a tough situation. Indeed. And there's, again, I hate to say it because, but it pains me, but it's the truth. No woman besides raising her children, wants to raise a man. Right. I couldn't think of anything that is less sexy right. than having to raise your partner. Right. It's, it does not feel good right. at all. Right. And that takes awareness on both people's parts. Absolutely. Because women are actually trained to be maternal. They will <gasps> often... It's a thing that you got to fight so hard. You have to become aware of it. Wow, I really am carrying both of us in this relationship. Oh, I really do look like him as a child. Oh, how much have I let him get away with because I want to avoid the fight? I want to avoid the tension. Things are going good enough. They're not, you know, yeah. you know, good is the enemy of great. It, the ship's like, ta- it might be taking on water, but it's not sinking. We're right. still we're still afloat. Right. In a in a couple I'm coaching, her whole job is to say no to things she to mediocrity. Like any of his behaviors that she deems mediocre. She's saying, no, I'm not going to accept that. It doesn't mean you have to change. It means I'm not going to accept that. I'm not accepting it. So if you want to be over here. Right. If you want to get some nookie, you know, you got to up-level your game. And the funny part is he really does want to up-level his game. But they haven't had the honesty in relationship. And they've co-created him being a man-child. So, you know, in the book, you you picked out that one section. And we've co-created this mess. Men, all genders, I like to use the word all genders, all genders have really co-created this mess. I'm not saying one is less than the other. I'm just saying we've all participated. We, yeah, we have all participated because we're all involved in this, right. whether we like it or not. Right. It's just, it is the way that it is. And we have, as a as a, as a a people, we have to come together and right. figure that out. Um, there's been a lot of talk about like, oh, the future is female and this, that, and the other thing. And like, I vehemently disagree because mm-hmm. we're both here for a reason. Mm-hmm. And no one's going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So we have to do that. This is an all hands on deck right. endeavor. Like we all have to put in work on this. We all co-created this mess. Right. This is all us together and we have to untangle ourselves and, and figure it out. And women want good men. It's oh, we like, do. They beg yeah, all day, every day. Yeah, we want good men. We, you know, they want men who are willing to listen and willing to step up. And this is nothing I tell women these days is don't lower your bar. Keep raising your yes. bar because you know what? Men actually do like the challenge. And if they don't like the challenge, they go back to the porn and the video game and their bros. If they're looking for the extended you don't adolescence, want none of that anyway. let them go. But, you know, men, you know, good men, and there are a lot of good men. We, we actually tend to look more like nerds than, you know, <laughs> you know, just so you know, the nerds. There's nothing wrong with yeah, that. Yeah. But the point is, is that we do like the challenge if done with connection. Uh, you know, when women vomit their angst, when they nag, when, you know, they shoot daggers, no, we don't want to hang around. But if a woman sets up a good game for a man. <laughs> he will he will play with enthusiasm. Yeah. My wife said to me, I think I want a house. Oh, I think I want a house in Los Angeles. Oh, I think I want a house in a pool, four bedrooms. In the, you know, <laughs> I saw the number of zeros yeah. and it, there yeah, were many. The, yeah, the decimal points were <laughs> yeah, just exactly. extrapolating out. And I was like, oh, that's a good game. So that's. I enjoy that. Okay, let's figure it out. Let's do it together. And then together we're co-creating this game of how to get this house. So again, it's it's women creating, setting the bar high, creating good games, and men saying, okay, let's play. I don't know if I can do it, but at least we'll have the adventure of a lifetime. Trying. Finding out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, like I always, you know, I I always hear people who are like, oh well, you know, men hate women in this and the other thing. I'm like, I don't feel like that's totally true. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of this like patriarchal situation came about because of men's love of women, mm-hmm. because they do want to take care of us and have this, you know, mutual relationship and things like that. Like, I do think men genuinely like that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have stuck around this long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's become kind of disjointed in a way of like, no, I want to have my own life as my own person. But I want to have this togetherness mm-hmm. as a couple as well, and trying to manage those two, to manage those two things. Yeah, 
two things pop up when you say that. One is a saying my teacher would say to me. He said that men are tender kegs of affection looking for a place to go off. We're just so much love. We don't know how to do it. <laughs> we're a big, Dal- uh, you know, what are those Dalmatians? No, yeah. the St. Bernard's. We're yeah. big St. Bernard's with big tongues and big paws and just... we're not <laughs> looking at everything, right? So we're just big dogs when it comes down to it. Um, the second thing is men are scared shitless in this modern day. And that's what most women don't know. Like the majority of men are scared shitless because the scripts that our fathers and grandfathers gave us are not working. We're looking at women dominating the schooling system. If you look at the statistics, yeah. I think you know, men have more or women have more business licenses now than men do. All kinds that, yeah. of stuff. The, the world is changing rapidly. And so, again, the scripts that were handed us don't work. You know, men had two thirds of graduation, graduate degrees in the 1970s. It's flipped. You know, women are now two thirds. They're dominating the school system. They're coming into the boardroom. It's just changing. It's not equal in any shape or form, but it is changing. And men don't know who to be. And here's the biggest impact is men are not given permission to say, I don't know. I'm scared. What do we do? We put on masks. Yeah. We fake it until we make it. But inside, most men are really nervous because I don't know how to be a good man, uh, providing man in a world where women are getting more and more power. Well, you know, and I always see this thing where, you know, guys are like, oh, women just want money and this, that, and the other thing. It's like, that's not really true because I see a lot of chicks putting up a, with a lot for nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's not so good... these guys are getting lucky somehow yeah. because and it's not with cash. I can tell you that right now. Um, but I, I think there's some sort of thing, especially in men now, that they feel like that that's all that they have to offer. Mm-hmm. But it's not true, though, no. because there's a whole other laundry list of things that women are looking for in a partner, a keyword partner, right. um, that aren't necessarily that. Right. When you don't come to the table with any of those other things on the laundry list, the last thing you've got going for you is maybe cash, possibly. Right. But even that doesn't last forever. No. Women just... Here's the thing. So in the new seduction experience, so there are like all these steps. But you know, the last step is to dance. Women want dancing partners. They want men who are willing to switch from square dancing to swing dancing to break dancing to standing still. It is, it is, you have to, it's like you're learning jazz piano. Mm-hmm. You start off learning your scales. You know, you have all the scales, you get the basics. And then what's the second step of being a great jazz pianist? You learn to improvise. You learn to use the scales to become a great improviser in the moment. That's what women want. Women want men to be able to, to have the scripts, to do the work, to understand, to read the books, to listen to the podcasts, to take the workshops, to understand the basics of what it means to relate and succeed with a modern woman. And then they want you to throw out those damn scripts because <laughs> that is not happening in the moment. And men complain, like, I never know what she wants. Well, that's because you won't pay enough attention to pay. To I'm hear. sure if you asked, she'd tell you right. ver- verbatim. <laughs> if you asked politely and said thank you, regardless of the answer. Like, that's the thing. It's just like we have to be in a place where men are willing to lean in, be vulnerable, you know, have all their ideas shaken up. And then like, oh, that's a much more fun game than me by myself. Rob Candell by himself could have a happy life. Rob Candell with his wife, Morgan, has an explosively fun, dynamic life. It's the partnership with the wild feminine with a big appetite. And me over here with the providing skills, that's where the most fun happens. I dig it. (laughs) Well, I I think that's why uh, Derek Jackson does so well is because at the the very basis of what the stuff that he talks about is that he put in the effort. He found a lady and he was like, this is, this is, this is the person that I put in effort for. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to go find out. Right. And he did. And everybody's like, this man knows what he's doing. Right. <laughs> and they're, you know, vehement followers to the, to the point where he gets hate mail. It's like, how dare you tell these ladies <laughs> to level up and not put up with this shit. Now yeah. I'm out here left with nothing because I don't want to put in any effort. And I feel like effort is a beautiful thing. Like what else are, what else is there right. for you to do? Yeah. It's super fun. They're going to sit around, you know, looking at another CNN or watching another Netflix movie? No. Learn to dance with a powerful woman. And I and I just, I use the powerful woman as a woman who can just be herself in your company. It doesn't mean powerful in the boardroom or powerful. Yeah. It's just powerful means that she, you co-create the environment where she can authentically be who she is. And the truth is she doesn't really know who she is yet because she's never been with a man who said, yes, I want to know that. Oh, show me that. 
Ooh, that's interesting. Please oh, that's... love it when a man can teach them things. Love. Right. That's confronting. I might need to walk around the block for a second, but thank you for telling me. And then, you know, the woman, like, I learned so much from Morgan. And Morgan learns, and that's why we have such a dynamic relationship, is because she's a master in a certain arena I have no interest in, and yet shows me things that builds interest. And I do the same thing on a different level of abstraction. It's just, that's where the fun begins. Totally. I mean, I feel the same way about my own relationship, because... You get into relationships with people and, like, I'm not, like, a big planner of, like, oh, I'm going to go out with this person or whatever. Yeah. Like, that's not not even – it wasn't even on my radar mm-hmm. at the time. And I will tell – and whenever I do Playboy Radar, they're like, tell us how Steven escaped the friend zone again. <laughs> because he was on the tippy top of the do not date list yeah. for four years yeah. and then weaseled his way off. Yeah. Um, but I think, like, being in a relationship that you're – it's a real partnership, you're both – putting in not not 50 50 mm-hmm. 110 and 110 mm-hmm. that's where you get to go places mm-hmm. and if you're somebody who wants to go places not sit around and do nothing that is most certainly the way to do it mm-hmm. is to be like okay well whatever the answer is just to get an answer right. whatever the answer is just accept the information like you said say thank you and be like okay i'm either going to go process this or i get it or i don't get it i need further whatever it is but just being okay within yourself mm. to ask and receive an answer. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what it is mm. because you can't do anything without that first step. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I read in your thing that you said that, um, back to the external validation thing uh-huh. about how men, when they were like, Oh yeah, the ladies did really great on these test scores. How do you think you're going to do or how they performed? They were very hung up on it. But when you told women the same thing, they're like, mm, yeah, whatever. The, I'm not sure exactly which um, that is. Here, let me pick it. Well, I don't think I can pick it up. That's fine. Um, but apparently there was some study that they were giving men and women like some sort of like test, like an academic test. Okay. And they said, okay. They told the guys like, okay, um, the women did really well on this. Oh, right. Like, how well do you think you're going to do? Right. And it greatly affected their answers. Right. Whereas women were like, I don't know, and just did the test and... They got what they got. Exactly. Well, it's just different rules. Um, I think that has to go back to chauvinism, has to go to being one step up. It's because men compare themselves. We're, we're, we're game players. We, we really are trained <laughs> to look at sports. We're trained to look at what I like to call what uh, James Carson, Simon Sinek, has now wrote a book on the concept of finite versus infinite games. A finite game is one where you play win or loss. There's set rules and concepts. An infinite game is one where you just want to continue to play. So men it's a like, really long board game. Well, it is a lifetime. It's an infinite board game, basically. And then infinite games are made up of finite games, but finite games do not include infinite games. So men like to win because what do we do? We get external validation from the winning. Women just tend to want to play. You know, of course that's important to them. And women do have masculine attributes. I'm not saying all women don't have this win-loss thing. They certainly do. Yeah, well, some people are competitive and some people aren't. That's right. just the way we all are. But women, because they weren't part of the boys' club, because they weren't invited to the game, they're like, okay, we're going to play my own game. And my own game is, you know, one of connection and one of collaboration. Tend to be Men tend to be more solo hunters, wanting to kill, bring home the meat <laughs> bring and home, succeed. Bring home the meat and succeed. Yeah. That's interesting because, important, just in my personal experience, I feel like that especially now that women have all these degrees and Mm. all these business licenses and they're, you know, we're really leveling up, um, that men don't care about that. Like it doesn't really, doesn't make a difference to them one way or the other. Like, is she hot? (laughs) And that's, well, there's, is she hot in day one, Mm -hmm. but then in day 30, then they start to compare themselves to the women. There's a book called the end of men by Rosen really stellar book, one of the biggest, really amazing book, and talk about the impact of women being in the driver's seat, where, you know, being the primary moneymaker, the financial contributor of the family, and how that impacts. Most men are really in depression, don't know how to deal with it, don't know who to be, you know, polarity in terms of a woman in power in her masculine, the sex goes out of the relationship, they become more friends. And so, you know, there, there are men to be like, great, you know, there's there's men I've interviewed be like, great, she's obviously smarter and better at this than I am. I'm going to support her. But most men have their ego attached 
their validation attached to the job and being one step degree better than the women they're with, and they tend to not succeed in relationships. So we need more stay-at-home dads, that's what you're saying? Well, I mean, it's it's what we need is an awareness of it, confronting it, and then getting in agreement with it. And just accepting mm-hmm. <laughs> accepting the situation for what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read um, there was an interesting story in the in the end of men or was this and it, that was written during the recession i think Two, i think it published in 2012 yeah so yeah she was probably yeah 2009 yeah 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 she was because i remember this one lady talked in that book talked about how like i think they lived on the east coast or something and she was like you know i was with this guy we have a kid together i'm supporting all of us and mm-hmm. she's like i can't the, the kid has to get fed mm-hmm. i have to get fed mm-hmm. i can't feed you too dude mm-hmm. you gotta go mm-hmm and yeah that's I remember that section yeah and i was like oh man and she's like we're fine just her and her daughter she's yeah. like we're cool it's fine and he's off god knows where probably living in a car or something i don't know but well that was, book talked about the loss of six million industrial jobs absolutely lost in the first decade of this century that were primarily run by men so mm-hmm. you know you can look at automation you can look at robotics you can look at where the world's I'm from going Detroit. i get it okay yeah so <laughs> i get it let me tell you we're we're losing men are losing those those primary positions you know my job you know michael camel talks about this in angry white men another great book uh basically the concept of the that woman that minority is taking my job away from me nope it's not your job you may have held it for, for all these 6,000 yeah. years, but this time is over. The world is changing. And so for men to learn new skills, especially around the concept of emotional intelligence, empathy, communication, collaboration, the ability to work in teams, this is what men need to learn to keep up with women who are really taking over uh, more and more positions in society because they're better at it. Well, and that's, I've been talking with that about my friends lately. I'm like, because... Because of that nurturing thing, right. especially when you have children in the, in, involved, women will kill themselves. They will work themselves to death right. to provide for that situation because it's what God made us to do, basically. Right. So when you take the partner aspect out of it, when the father of that child, it, it kind of doesn't matter what he's doing mm-hmm. because that mom will work to death, right. basically. So I think the that goes back to that external internal validation situation that men have a different priority in that working themselves to death mm-hmm. than women do. And we have a major disparity there. Right. Basically. Yeah. Michael Kimmel calls it a grieved entitlement. Yeah. Uh, he wrote, I read several of his books. He's an amazing writer. I actually got in a little trouble with me too as well. So that, yeah. that someone told me that. And I don't know the details of that. Someone just whispered that in my ear. So, but still his books are great. We love whispers on the show. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's our favorite, um, it's our favorite thing actually. But he talked about this concept of a grieved, grieved entitlement and just like, uh, when it comes to women entering the workforce, well, they're still maintaining all the household chores. hours yeah. and chores. There's still a disproportionate women still working a full-time job and still running the family. Absolutely. And men are working the same amount of hours and maybe a little bit more. But there's just these these statistics. And it's just like, to me, it's just like, okay, men, like, it's like, wake up. Like, this could actually be the best party, the best time in our history for men to be hanging out with empowered, sexually curious, um, financially stable women. It could be the best party if you stop whining if you stop sitting in your grief entitlement then you can actually have the most fun that any of our predecessors ever had totally because we all get to we all get to contribute and we all get to benefit mm-hmm. like equally as a as a situation totally yeah and i was i was thinking about that too because another thing that i talked to my friends with a, a, at great lengths is like you know your workload at home um because there's kind of that famous thing of like my life, my wife left me because I put dishes next to the sink, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically of like, it was a big deal to her. I didn't care about it. So mm-hmm. she was like, well, I guess you don't care then bye mm-hmm. to, to simplify it. But that's true though, because it's really, it's really, really hard to come home and still have to do all of the chores. Mm-hmm. And this, um, there's, if you guys don't know, there's a gigantic Facebook group that's all of ladies in LA, and I think it's like 45,000 deep. So we all know things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all tell each other things. So if you think you can pull any business around here, you can't. Mm. But um, 
she was like, yeah, I'm leaving out of town for some work trip. And I had to spend 90 minutes making a video for my husband to show him where things are in our house. Mm. It's like, you also live here. How do you know, not know this mm. thing? And she's like, okay, ladies, like, what do I, what, make me a list of like things that he needs to know because I got to cover all my bases because mm. I'm going to be gone. And if like our kids need something, he needs to know where it's located. Mm. And I'm like, doesn't he also live there? Mm. <laughs> like, isn't it also his house? Well, my practice every night is to do the dishes with my wife, Morgan. Yeah. I work, you know, 10, 12 hours. It doesn't matter. I do that with her. She also often says, thank you for helping. And my response is, I'm not helping. You're doing. I'm doing. This is our job. Absolutely. This is something we do together. And we have we have it down to a science. Like, she's a much better dishwasher than I am. And she <laughs> lets me know that. And so I, like, put the food away. I make the, you know, bring all the dishes, make it really easy. Yeah. But it's, it's so enjoyable. And I can see just these little things. Like, it's not hard to really impress a woman with these little things. <laughs> We're actually out. very easily impressible, as it well, turns out. Well, because of all my brothers who have just not even considered it. And, and... Every household is different. Every woman is different. And so just to have that vulnerable conversation, hey, I want to be more involved in co-owning this house. I want to understand all aspects of this. You know, she's a much better cook than I am, but I'm still happy to be her sous chef. Yeah. Would that make you happy? I take out the trash. Because you both got to eat. Exactly. And so it's really back to the basics of transparency, connection, communication. Okay, so talking about your brothers and that, what is their hang-up in not doing that? Well, what you find is a very simple activity. Why are they so graded by it? Like, I will not do this. <laughs> well, obviously, I think it's the scripts. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't see our fathers do it. I don't think I've ever seen my father do a dish in my entire life. And you're, <laughs> you're like, I'm, never, I'm not even I'm, sure he's even picked yeah. up a sponge. He started cooking when he actually loves to cook. Okay. But he started cooking when he retired in this, you know, 50s and 60s but i never saw him cook um i don't know if he even took out the trash like i don't know he he worked he was a workaholic and worked all the time he came mm -hmm. home he put his keys on the counter he had his clue and cream we had dinner and then i'm not sure what happened after that but there was an order of things yeah but i never saw him go outside this madman stereotypical yeah. man woman dynamic and for my brothers to be like, the world has changed. It's not changing. It is changing. But it has changed from these scripts. And so willing to be like, even though it worked for my father and grandfather, it may not work for your current partner. This is the point. So yeah. get curious and ask. You're married to her, right. not your daddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or your mother. Yeah, or absolutely. Well, that's really interesting because I'm always having this conversation with my grandma. Although I'm not a person who's... I don't really have parents. Like, I'm not influenced by them. Mm -hmm. So when people are like, oh, well, my parents, I'm like, tell me about this. This right. is a very interesting, fascinating concept to me. Um, but she's always kind of getting on everybody. It's like, he worked all day. And, like, you need to do this. And you need to do that. And it's like, actually, we both work today. Right. And I think, because my grandpa was a coal miner. And then they moved up north. And he got a steel job. And, like, I, I get that level of tired that mm -hmm. she's talking about mm -hmm. in those, you know, intensely physical yeah. laborious yeah. jobs yeah. i get what you're talking about right. i see what you're saying it just doesn't apply to these, typing yeah yeah on the keyboard <laughs> yeah for eight hours like it's yes you're working and that's that is a thing and but raising two kids carpooling mm -hmm. tantrums energetic food shopping food cooking yeah women are also exhausted yeah like like i do everything I can to do these little things. Like, can I pick up food on the way home? Do you want me to pick up the kid from the play date? Just these little things. Yeah. And it just like, ah, one less thing one on less her to-do list that she can pass on yeah. to me. And I'm just so grateful for that because I can feel, because I let go of the script that she should handle. I produce the money in the relationship because I'm good at making money. It's like I think and I can make money. Like it's, it's <laughs> a, That is just my skill. And, and thank God for it. Right. And at the same time, I don't want to be, because I make the money, again, agreed yeah. entitlement, you should do A, B, and C. We have open, vulnerable conversations about, okay, how do we do this together? How do we live together? Totally. Well, I always I always compare that to like, okay, like if that is you have that, you know, that relationship of he goes to work and makes the money and you stay home and take care of the house and the kids and blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's great. But just like... She's not out here just racking up bills for the sake of doing right. it for you to pay. You're not over here racking up messes for her to clean up. Right. Just 
because for the sake of doing so. Mm-hmm. Like it's a both like if you're if you had a bill come in the mail because she went to Saks and dropped three grand, you'd be like, what is this? Right. <laughs> Just like if you drop socks and 10 dirty dishes on a floor in some obscure room in your house, she's not going to be like, what is this? What right. did you do? I just vacuumed this. It's the same thing. Right. Just different consequences. Yep. Yeah. It's time. You know, and all it takes is confronting, okay. researching, committing, and building practices. I Little take baby it. practices, too. Um, do you feel like you're the, not just your clients because you're personally coaching them, but like as a whole, like, do you think like people are becoming more conscious of this process and like how to survive this? Or do you think there's still, I think in terms of, disconnect? I think in terms of the bell curve, mm-hmm. you know, I think there is a the percentage of men who are really getting it. And I know a lot of them. I know a lot of great teachers. I'm also on the left coast bu- uh, bubble. Yeah. You know, <laughs> That's true. And then I think the other end of the bell spectrum, the bell curve spectrum, that guys would be angry. You know, they tend to be like the Trump supporters. They would actually be angry at this conversation. Then, but I really talk to the middle. I really talk. And the book is written. It's a pragmatic guide. It's not complicated. I actually wanted a more esoteric (laughs) book. I wanted like a tome. You'd have to read a chapter and take a walk around the block. That was kind of my ego. Yeah, that was my ego wanted. But then the feedback I got was men are not going to read this. And so, I wrote a pragmatic, easy-to-use, personal, vulnerable book where I show my own foibles in there so and the, the middle can read it. And I think there's hope for the middle because I think the middle are not happy with their lives. They might be yeah, content. Yeah, I, I think that's the majority or so I've heard. Right. I think they might be content to unhappy, but I think they're not thrilled. And to me, just building simple changes in your life one after another, building your self-esteem. Self-esteem is built upon esteemable acts. The things you do, every action you do makes you more and more happy. And so you can build this life of practice and awareness and up-leveling. And so. Um, and isn't that what we drive all of these children to go do, all these self-esteem building activities, all their sports and their tutoring and this, that, and the other thing? It's like you're doing it for your kids. Do it for yourself. Right. Or maybe that's just my outside-looking well, perspective. Hopefully. But With good intention, it can be yeah. that. But there's, there's some bad intentions in that. Oh, field. yeah. <laughs> that's why we have yeah. all these signs strapped to, to Little League fields. Like, it's okay. Just just yeah. calm down. It's yeah. T-ball. Yeah. I get it. All right. Well, thank you so much for My being pleasure. on No Filter Friday on Public House Media. Thank you. And where, what is, what's your social media? Where can the people find you? Everything can be found via the website, robertcandell.com. There's links there. Um, it's robert.candell on Facebook and Instagram. Um, but everything can be found at robertcandell.com. I have my own top, my own podcast. It's called Tough Love. Tough Love. <laughs> T-U-F-F Love. Uh, but everything, you just go to robertcandell.com. It'll point you in the right direction. Awesome. And your book, Unhidden, is available on Amazon, yes. obviously. And yes. anywhere else? On your website? Uh, it's on my website. On your it's website. on Amazon. Yes. I haven't read it, but I can tell that it's a it's a it's a top it, top, rec- top recommended reading. <laughs> well, please let me know. Let me know what you think. For sure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All right, that's enough. No filter Friday on Public House Media. I will see you all next week.